we have a special guest with us today, uh, Margaret Feinberg, who's going to talk about hospitality and, and the amazing thing that happens, how God uses food to create lessons and to create moments for us to connect with him. And if you're a foodie, I think you're going to love this. And if you're not a foodie, I think you're going to love this. I think last couple of years, I remember when I first got married, uh, my wife, I think, cooked like five things and I cooked like three things. And, and pretty quickly we got like sick of the menu. And the last couple of years, as my wife had two back surgeries and the challenges of having a son with autism in the midst of all of that, I was doing a lot of the cooking. And I realized I need to take cooking instead of being a, a burden to make it part of the expression of my, my creative self. And so I really fell in love with cooking the last couple of years as I was going to have to do it anyway, might as well enjoy it. And so now that my wife's back is doing so much better and our life's kind of back to normal, we've been doing HelloFresh together, you know, once a week where the meals come in and we're chopping things together and making new and fresh things. Because maybe during COVID you're like, oh my goodness, we got to eat again and I'm so sick of the same menu. It's been amazing how food has become a real expression of our creative time together as a family and as a couple. Isn't it amazing that if there is a God who made the world, that he could have made it bland. He could have made it colorless and tasteless. But rather he put cones and receptors in our retinas to see the colors and sensations of the world. But he also put taste buds in our mouth so that all the sensations and colors of this world could be fully and completely brought in. Could it be possible those things you love to taste, those things you love to experience, could be very avenues to discover the God who made us all? All through the Bible, God uses food. One piece I want to show you before we invite Margaret up is, is matzah. It's unleavened bread, bread that hasn't risen yet. And Jesus used this piece of matzah to what you may know as the, the Eucharist or the Lord's table or communion. He said we can even learn about what he did for us and the main message of the Bible, and the main message of life, we can experience forgiveness by understanding God's lessons, even about bread. Let's watch. Hi, friends. Today, you are in for a treat, because Jess and I, we're going to make matzah. Now, matzah is an unleavened bread that commemorates the Israelites leaving Egypt in such a rush that they didn't have time to allow their bread to rise. And so to make this bread kosher, we only have 18 minutes. I know, right? But so fast. It is. And from the time the water hits the flour until the bread is removed from the oven, 18 minutes. Now I'll explain more of the details about that 18 minutes okay. in the teaching. All right, you got this. One of the adventures that I took was to study bread in the Bible. And since I was with an expert on ancient grains, he chose two flours that were used by the Israelites, barley and emmer. Now it is time to pop those in the oven at 450 degrees between four to five minutes until there's just a hint, barely a hint of brown. You ready? I'm ready. Okay, rush to it. Okay, Jess, that smells fabulous and amazing. We hit the 18 minute mark with seconds to spare. Just barely. And I'm excited about how this recipe is gonna help us better understand bread in the Bible. Like maybe you grew up saying the Lord's Prayer, you know, give us this day our daily bread. Bread is very much part of how we learn to depend on God, find purpose, find meaning for our lives. Can we give a warm horizon welcome to Margaret Feinberg? Margaret, thanks for being here today. We appreciate it. 
Thank you. So glad to be here today. I want to share a little bit just about kind of my little story uh, where I've been and how I fell in love in that a number of years ago, I was living in my home state of Colorado when I got a call from my aunt in Sitka, Alaska, that my uncle had gone out scuba diving and when he came to the surface, he was dead. It turned her world upside down and she desperately needed help from someone in the family with her bed and breakfast. And being one of the only people with a flexible schedule, I traveled up to help my aunt with her B&B for several summers. And while I was there, I met some rather unforgettable people, one of whom was a tall, strapping Alaskan by the name of Leif. You see, I was signing books in a church cafe, and I didn't really notice him, but he totally noticed me, because I'm like Dory from Finding Nemo. Hi! But, but I eventually caught on to the fact that wherever I went in Sitka, there was life. Now, that might have been a little uncomfortable, disconcerting, downright creepy, except that in Sitka, Alaska, there's only 14 miles of road end to end. This is one of those tiny towns where people live in a fishbowl existence, where you see the same people at the gas station, the post office, the grocery store. I mean, this is a town so small that when people register for their wedding, they register at true value. So. Here I am, just keep bumping into Leif. We become friends, and after only knowing him for about five to six weeks, I remember it was time for me to return to Colorado, but before I did, he sits me down, he looks me in the eyes, and he says, Margaret, I would like to ask you to consider moving to Alaska to pursue a relationship to become my wife. Wow, way to let it all hang out. And I remember thinking, ooh, I am so not moving to Alaska for a boy. I mean, they make movies out of people who do that, starring Sandra Bullock. <laughs> so I pack up. I return to Colorado, but Leif keeps calling and pursuing me. And a few months later, my cousin was getting married off the coast of Washington, and my mom had come in for the wedding, and Leif had come in just to see me, and for the first time, we all shared a meal. And at the end of that time around the table, my mom looked at me and said, Margaret, this guy is amazing, and you are a fool if you don't give this relationship a chance. And so I listened to my mom, I packed up, I moved to Alaska, and 10 months later, I married my stalker. <laughs> and on this image up here on the screen, you will see the man whom I love and I serve and I adore. And today we live in Park City, Utah. He works with Afghan refugees with an organization and immigration kids, and he is the love of my life. We have a very cute puppy by the name of Zoom. And he's six foot eight, and I'm only five foot six. So when he puts on his cologne, he puts it down here. And I'm like, honey, you smell so good. But the other person that I met in that bed and breakfast summers that just I couldn't forget was a woman by the name of Lynn. And one morning over scones and coffee, we were talking about life when she shared what she did in her free time. And she was a shepherdess. And as she is talking about caring for her sheep, I'm instantly having Bible passages come alive. Well, I built up a rapport with her and a relationship, and eventually she invited me to spend time with her and her flock outside of Portland, Oregon. And that one breakfast and that one week with her changed the way that I read the Bible forever. 
because all of a sudden I was introduced to the agrarian or the agricultural world of the Bible. And actually what I realized is that if you start to look for food and food stuff in the Bible, you will find it pops and sizzles on almost every page. I mean, from the beginning of Genesis, where the creator lays out a garden like a fabulous feast of noshing and nibbling, to the prophets who are constantly drawing on food imagery, to Jesus himself, who's like, I'm the bread of life, I'm the true vine, all the way to the closing of Revelation, where we get this personal invitation to the biggest, baddest, best banquet of all time, the marriage supper of the Lamb. And so, with so many mentions of food in the Bible, I knew that I kind of had to narrow my search. And so what I did is I just identified six different foods of the Bible, and I sought out the people who planted and procured and processed them. Not large manufacturers, but people who had an artisanal care for the animal welfare, the quality of the soil, the food they were producing. And this journey led me to go fish in the Galilee, to pluck figs in Madera, California. I tracked down the head of the Yale Divinity School, who happens to be an expert on ancient grains. I cold called him, introduced myself, and invited myself to his house to bake bread for an afternoon. Because that's what normal people do. And serial killers. I even went to McKinney, Texas, where I studied under a butcher who called himself the Meat Apostle and graduated from a Steakology 101 course. With each of these individuals, I just opened up this ancient text and I asked, how do you read these passages? Not as like smart theologian guys, but just as people who, who do this every day. And their answers changed the way that I read this book forever. You see, time and time again, I found myself asking, how have I grown up in the church? How have I studied the Bible? How have I listened to so many sermons and so many podcasts and nobody has told me these things? And so this journey became the foundation for a book and Bible study called Taste and See, Discovering God Among Butchers, Bakers, and Fresh Food Makers. Why Taste and See? Because there's a psalm in here that invites each of us to taste and to see, to savor the fact that God is good. And if there was ever a time in history when we are a people who need to rise up, introducing people to the goodness of God and experiencing himself, learning to savor God in our every day, it is us here, now, today. And so what I wanted to do was simply just introduce just two little morsels that I discovered from two different foods in my journey of taste and see. And the first is a pretty common food. It's one that is maybe even in your kitchen right now or in your refrigerator because after all, it is grape season as we're in these winter months. And so these are easy to find and I love the ones that are just so sweet and full of that magical flavor. But if you start to look at grapes in the Bible, you will discover nearly 500 mentions of grapes and vines throughout the scripture. They appear in Genesis in the story of Noah, where once he got off of the ark, he fell off of the wagon. We see imagery throughout the Old Testament, including the prophets using vine and vineyard imagery, which is kind of intriguing because the Bible says, you know, drunkenness is, is not a good thing. It's, it's forbidden. And so the question is, is, why would God use the vine and the vineyard imagery? Well, it's interesting because modern archaeologists have found that in the ancient plots of land, when they study where people lived, there are actually traces of vines in the land. 
So when God was using the vine and vineyard imagery, he'd be like, God using our tomato plants or our cucumber plants or whatever we grow in the summer in our backyards. But of all of the mentions of vine and vineyard imagery, I think none is more potent than that found in the Gospel of John, chapter 15, when we discover that Jesus actually takes on this imagery for himself, to describe himself. He's like, hey, I'm food stuff. And here's what he says in John 15, beginning in verse 1. He says, I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As a branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you, unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. Nada, zilchamundo. And so in order to understand this passage, what I did is I traveled to Napa Valley, California. And some of you are thinking, why didn't you put me in your suitcase? And I went and I spent time with a boutique vintner manager by the name of Christoph. And we walked the various pieces of land and his properties and looked at the vines and explored and asked questions. And then we sat down to really discuss this passage. And what I began to discover is that there are two main themes that emerge from the passage. And the first is the image of pruning. I don't know about you guys, but when it comes to cutting back, being pruned in my life, like I'm not the girl who's like, ooh, ooh, pick me. Like I want more and more and more and more. Like when it comes to pruning, I'm the girl who's like, I'm going to do the moonwalk out the back door. You first, bye. And so... I just, I just don't want to do it because honestly, kind of when I think of pruning, I think, okay, so if I am this vine that is growing up, then maybe God's going to come along with like a big machete and he's going to go, whack, what's that area? That's a wild thing. That doesn't belong there. You have to conform to this. You can only be this. This is all we have. This is it until I'm just this little short stubby thing that is left. When I described this to Christoph, he looked at me and said, Margaret, that is not how we prune vines in Napa Valley. And he began to describe how he would go through with these little teeny clippers that look like this on the screen and on the image. I mean, the blades were only about that long, maybe two inches. And I remember thinking, man, what are those cuticle clippers? And, and then he would describe how he would go through the vineyard so many times during the growing season that he would handle every single cluster of grapes three to four times. And as he would go through, he would cut back just a little bit of a branch and just a little bit of a leaf so that every single grape got the perfect amount of light and sunlight and air, not just for maximum flavor, but for maximum fruitfulness. When he described this, I began to start to see that maybe the pruning that God does in our life a little bit different. The pruning he does in your life. You see, when God comes and he wants to prune us, he has got his hands all over us. He is lifting us up. He is carrying us. And he is removing the things in our life that are excess, that can get in the way of our maximum fruitfulness and our ability to flourish fully in him. But when you look at this passage, you'll see that the image is not just of that of pruning, it's also the image of abiding. 
When you think about abiding in the vine, I, I read this passage kind of growing up and I kind of had this picture of like, if there is a vine and there is a branch and there's grapes, that as long as every kind of thing just kind of stays together, as long as we're kind of plugged in to, to, to Christ, to God, then everything will be okay. And while that is true, I began to understand more of that abiding invitation as I studied more of viticulture and the growing of grapes. You see, I always thought that if I wanted to grow incredible grapes, that I would use seeds. And Christoph corrected, and he says, no, actually you want to use shoots. And any of you who may be starting a new outreach or a new nonprofit or serving the community or a ministry or maybe even thinking about starting you know, a small group or church, listen up, because they use shoots. In other words, they are drawing on the wisdom and the strength of that which has gone before. And that first year, they go through and they plant those shoots and the shoots grow up. And at the end of that year, the vintner goes through and he cuts them back. The second year, they grow up even taller and fuller and he goes through at the end of that year and he cuts them back. In year three, they grow up even fuller and they start to bring in uh, quite a few grapes, but they actually don't take them. They cut them back. And it won't be until year four that that vine will start to grow up and it will produce so many grapes. And at that point, the vintner will come in and he will harvest those grapes. He will process those grapes. But it won't be until year seven until he gets to taste the very first fruits of his labor. Because of the high cost of land in Napa Valley, the investors may not even reach a break-even point until year 14, 16, or 18. When Christoph described this, I began to understand the long-term perspective that God has with us when he invites us to abide in him. He invites us to wake up every day and to actually start to think about him, to to put our mind toward him, to ask what he wants us to do, to to stay in that place of connection. But, But sometimes like those grapes and like that investor, I look and I just ask the question, why am I not more fruitful? Why am I not more productive? Has anybody during the pandemic asked those two questions? Because I sure know I have And it is like in those moments, the Spirit whispers to us that if you will just say yes to the invitation to abide in Christ, if you will just be consistent and seek that out day after day, month after month, year after year, that God is going to produce a harvest in you that is beyond your wildest imagination. And it may not be for another two years or four years or six or ten, but will you remain faithful to abide in him. But you see that invitation to abide, it's not just what's going on in the surface of those vines and those grapes growing, it's actually what is also going on underneath the soil. Because I always thought that if I wanted to go and and I wanted to plant really great grapes that I would go down to True Value where I registered for my wedding and I would buy one of those big bags of miracle grow soil. And so what I would do is I would have that. And you guys know miracle grow, right? Like you stick your fingers in and they grow three inches instantly. It's not creepy or disturbing at all. But I thought, yeah, that's what we're going to go grapes in. And again, Christoph is like, honey, you need to stick to writing because you don't have a future here in Napa Valley. And I was like, you're right. Because he says, when you want to grow the best grapes in the world, you actually don't want lush, rich soil. 
He said, you actually want rocky, difficult soil. Did you know that there is a winery over in France called Chateau Lafitte in which they grow their grapes in 75% gravel? And there are days that the vintner will go out and he will inspect the vines and he will say it is not rocky enough. And he will take a rock or several and he will place it next to the vines because he knows that it is those rocks that force the vine to grow stronger. To, to produce more nutrients within the grapes. It is those rocks that force the roots to go deeper and to reach minerals and, and sustenance that they need that they would not otherwise. And I don't know about you guys, but I have rocks in my life. We have one big rock on earth right now known as the pandemic. My hunch is you have rocks in your life too those difficult areas, those places of pain, those unspoken longings and desires, those things that you wish if it was just a little bit different, if that relationship was made right, if I could just communicate with that person better, if this pain would just be removed from my life, if that scar wasn't there. And sometimes I cry out just like you do and go, God, why don't you remove this rock? I ask you again and again, and no matter how many times I ask, it's like it does not budge. And in those moments, it is like the Spirit whispers to you and to me, do you not know, have you not heard that that rock, that difficult area in your life, it is the very thing that I will use to produce the flavor of my son, Jesus Christ, in you? To which we say, God, if you are that good and you are that faithful, have your way with me. Indeed, he is the master vintner, and rest assured, he has good things up his sleeve for you. The second food that I wanted to highlight was one that appeared as a kid every year during Thanksgiving. And I don't know how many of you, whether you're online or whether you're in this room, had this. But every Thanksgiving in my family there would always appear a bowl of black olives. How many of you online? How many of you in this room had black olives at Thanksgiving? Okay, there are two in this room and wow, seven of you online. Well played, well played. But these were amazing and the reason that I love these as a kid, because as a kid, this is like the one time a year I could play with food at the table and I popped them on my fingers, all 10, and then I could do puppet shows and then when I was done, I'd just pop them off and eat them. And so what I learned, because I grew up with olives, is that Believe it or not, there are some people who don't really like olives. Oh yeah, you, and, and you, yeah, yeah. There's some of you who, olives is not your thing, and I just wanna let you know, you hurt my heart. You do. But I would also argue that perhaps if I were to take some really good olive oil and add in some fresh garlic and basil, and we were to pull an artisanal hot loaf of bread out of the oven, mm -hmm. maybe it's gluten-free or whatever your dietary restrictions may be, and you were to take that hot bread and dip it into that olive oil and those spices, perhaps you might be willing to look at the olive and its oil again. Well. In the Bible, there are nearly 300 references to olives and their trees and leaves throughout the scripture. And I didn't grow up with olives. Like, 
I was born in Florida, lived in North Carolina, Colorado, Utah, Alaska, all these places. None of them have olive trees. And so in order to better understand these references in the Bible, my husband Leif and I, we traveled to a remote island off the coast of Croatia to help a family would live there generation after generation, bring in their families olive harvest. And so we arrive and we're typical Americans with our oversized luggage and we climb into our hostess, Natalia's car, which is like this little jelly bean sized car because it's European and we're like, eat with all the luggage. And we go and we share a meal and spend the evening at our house. And the next day we rise up early in the morning to go and bring in part of this harvest. And I remember we begin driving toward the last little corners on this remote island and suddenly as we we come around one particular turn we look and it's like all of them there are olives in all directions and I remember Natalia pulled over on the side of the road and when she did she we climbed out and she popped open her trunk and she had all of our tools that we needed there which is pretty basic it was a couple of five gallon buckets and a couple of blue tarps and so we gather them and we start making our way up this rocky hillside until in one tree I start to notice some rustling and I get a little nervous because I don't know this island I don't know their creatures when all of a sudden this 70-something short lady comes down a ladder. We'll call her height challenged. And she comes up and Natalia explains that this is her mom. And instantly she looks at me and she goes, Magritte! And suddenly I feel like I am caught up in a Greek wedding movie. And I'm like, Mama! And so I just decide to call her that the rest of the trip. Well, Mama shows us how to pick olives. And the way that you do it is you take those blue tarps and you put them all over the ground so that any olives that fall are caught and don't just roll way down the hill because they've got that rich, precious olive oil in them. And so you've got the tarps down and then you have a five-gallon bucket. And what Mama would do is she would reach up, she showed us, and she would massage the branch. And as she did, the olives would plop, plop, plop into the five-gallon bucket. And the others were caught below. And so I thought, I got this. I got this. And, and so I've got my five-gallon bucket, and I reach up, and I'm like, and all of a sudden, leaves are flying. There's little, little teeny little pieces of wood flying off. Olives are going in all directions, and Mama looks at me and goes, and Italia explains you have to be careful about how you bring in the harvest, because if you break the wrong branches and the twigs, you actually impede the size of next year's harvest. And so here we are, and we are working, and we're doing this probably six, eight hours a day. And I remember somewhere along the way, Mama became convinced that if she would just speak loud enough to us in Croatian, we would suddenly understand. The only problem is, no ablo Croatian. And so she's getting louder and more fierce with each passing day. And I remember this one particular afternoon where she walks up to my husband, Leif, this, this high-challenged little woman, and she just starts screaming at him all of her might. And I'm thinking, what is wrong? And then she stops mid-sentence, and she takes her arms, and she wraps them around my husband's legs. And that's when we realized that Mama loved Leif the most because he was the tallest and could reach the branches that no one else could. But when you pick olives day after day, a bunch of hours a day, you just start to hurt. Your lower back, the muscles in your neck turn to knots, your legs start to ache, and as you're picking, you're brushing up against the various parts of the tree, and so you get little cuts on your hands. 
And yet what was amazing is when I came home in the evenings, I would look at my hands and it appeared like they had been soaking at a world-class spa. You see, God designed the olive. The creator of the universe designed the olive with antibacterial, antioxidants, anti-inflammatory properties so that even as you are doing the work, God's healing power is soaking in. And for some of you who are on the front lines in hospitals and in schools and caring for your own kids and working so many extra hours and juggling three jobs, that even as you are doing all of that hard work, the creator God still has the design for his healing for you to settle in. Well, if you look in the Bible for olives, what you will begin to notice is that they are all over the place. And if you look in the Hebrew text, the first portion of the scripture, what you'll see is that when it comes to olives, one of the primary places that it shows up is actually an anointing. Anointing is some that it's thing that is done with olive oil. We know that it was olives in the Bible was olive oil because of the billion olive trees on planet Earth, 900 million are all in the Middle East. And so I got this very special organic extra virgin olive oil from the Isle de Kirkland. Go Costco! <laughs> and what we read about in the Hebrew text is that when people would be anointed, it wasn't like sometimes we do in, in spiritual gatherings today where a little dab will do you. But rather, when people were anointed, they would pour over a huge jar. It would run down their hair and down their faces. It would drip down their chin and onto their bellies and clothes. And this spiritual act of anointing was something that was, that was, in, that was welcomed and it was particularly appointed for the kings and the priests. And as they were anointed, it was like the high, light would hit the oil and it would reflect the very favor of God. And what were the kings and the priests actually called to do in the Hebrew text? They were called to bring healing to the land. Man, is that something we all long for today. And so, we should not be surprised that when Jesus comes, he is called the Messiah, which actually means the anointed one. And this man, Jesus, who, who is bringing healing to the world, healing to you and I, who desires to do that each and every day, the, the text tells us that on the night of his arrest, he could have gone anywhere, and he chooses an X marks the spot kind of place, the Garden of Gethsemane, the garden meaning of the olive press. And we know that olive yard had long been established because for olives to come to fruition on the trees, it usually takes about your 13, 14, or 15 until you can bring in a rich harvest. And so here is Jesus, the anointed one, coming into the space and rich imagery of olive trees, likely toward the center of the garden near the olive press. Now, why was the olive press in the center? Because I can tell you from Croatia that once those olives are ripe, they're super heavy. You don't want to carry them, far, carry them far. And so you put the press in the center for the shortest carry space and time. Jesus, anointed one, olive trees, olive press. If you've ever seen a picture of an olive press from antiquity, it is like two large white stones that are stacked atop each other. And what happens is as the top stone turns, you feed the olives in and the olives writhe and wrestle under that weight and that pressure and olive oil emerges. Anointed one, 
surrounded by olive trees next to the olive press. The text tells us that Jesus is in that place, but he too, like those olives, he is writhing and he is wrestling. There's so much pressure on him. And it's just, it just feels like too much. And he is, he is literally being crushed. But unlike oil dripping from him, the text tells us that actually blood, which is scientifically can happen, drips from his pores because it's just so much. And in that wrestling and that writhing, Jesus says, it's not my will, but it's God's will be done. Jesus goes forth and he endures the cross, that thing that, that was just so much. And yet the Bible tells us that three days later, he rises up with healing power in his midst. And so... In the book of James, there is this instruction and this question. And the question is simply this. Are any of you sick? Are any of you sick? Struggling with the diagnosis the psychologist gave you? Feeling the crushing weight of depression? Maybe you never had it before this pandemic, or maybe you fought that battle your entire life. Are any of you sick? Caught in that horror coaster of the medical system where they can't even diagnose you and explain to you why you are hurt and give you a solution of something to do about it. Are any of you in the battle for your lives right now? Are any of you sick? You should call for the elders of the church to come and pray over you, anointing you with oil in the name of the Lord. Why is this still this commanded, instructed spiritual practice of bringing healing? And why, why use olive oil of all things? I suspect God chose olive oil for anointing. I mean, he could have chosen milk or mud or something else, but I think he chose olive oil because God knew that the healing properties were already embedded in. But I think a second reason that he did it is because he wants to remind us Every time we're in our kitchens cooking with olive oil, when we're munching on olives, when we're eating olive bread, when we're gathered around, food cooked in this oil, the substance on our lips, that our God is a healer. And he wants us to unleash his healing in us and to remind us of what Christ did for all of us. The one who rises in healing in his midst the anointed one. And can I encourage you, some of you who are hurting here today, battled some ugly physical stuff. I live in chronic pain. But can I encourage you that sometimes you cry out and you ask God, like, God, can you just heal me in this one area and you don't see, you don't see any improvement? Can I encourage you to remember that just because God does not heal you in that one area does not mean that he is not healing you in 10,000 others. A number of years ago, I battled a very aggressive form of cancer. Some people get the little snack cancer. I got like the mega-sized meal, the chemotherapy, the radiation, five surgeries. Trashed my body. It felt like it trashed my life. I don't know if you guys know this, but when you struggle a crisis in your life, often what happens is when you go out into the world, that crisis becomes the only thing that other people talk to you about. 
whatever your loss or your pain is. And, and so at the time that you don't really want to talk about the things, that's their connection point. And I remember in the midst of that season struggling so hard. The crisis was everything, occupied every day, every moment. And I remember in the midst of that just praying and saying, God, I need help, I need wisdom, this is too much. And I sensed a whisper of the Spirit and it simply said this. You can cling to the crisis or you can cling to Christ, but you do not have arms big enough for both. I remember thinking, God, I want to cling to you, but I don't know how. There's a little passage tucked into the book of Jeremiah 29, 11, that describes the fact that God has a hope and a future for you. Even when you don't see it, even when you don't feel it, even when everything is dark, God still has a hope and a future for you. He still has good things up his sleeve for you. I began thinking, how do I, how do I put a pin in that? Like, how do I pin that to the wall of my life and of my heart that you have a hope and a future when I can't even, like, have the strength to walk across my living room? And I remember one day just sitting in this middle of my living room, and I'm just kind of stuck and feeling terrible, and I looked up, and I, I noticed the 80s peachy color of our walls, and I thought, what if we got some new paint? So my husband went out and got some paint. We started painting the walls and went on Craigslist and updated a few little pieces of furniture in the house. And you know what happened? All of a sudden, there was this mindset switch of, wait, God has a hope in the future. I'm going to be here. These walls are not going down. I'm not going down with these peachy colored walls. And all of a sudden, people in our lives had something else to talk about other than the disease, other than the crisis. And so I remember I, I looked at my husband, I said, you're the caregiver, and man, if you're a caregiver online, or you're a caregiver in this room, you know, man, it just, it's, just, it's just so much. There's so little attention and support given to you. But, but I looked at life and said, what do you want to do to put a pin in the fact God has a hope and a future for you? He stops and he thinks and he says, you know, I've always wanted to swim Alcatraz. Buddy, the goal is to stay alive. No, 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 no. But he signs up for the race. Six months out, he starts swimming, he starts training. And you know what? Everybody else has a different connection point for him now other than the disease. How's your time? How's it going? What's your expectations? All of those things. And so eventually, the race day arrives. And Leif goes out and swims. And you know what? He finishes fourth in his age category. I know. Nice. Amazing. But honey... That is not good enough for my husband. And he says, I'm going to swim this race until I finish in the top three of my age category. So we go back. Year two. And he goes out and he swims, and guess what he finishes? Fourth. <laughs> Year three. He goes out and he swims again. Guess what he finishes? Fourth. It was recently year five, and I was like, please, baby Jesus, I need a miracle here. A big one. A big one. And he goes out and he finishes, and you know what he finished? first in his age category. But that wasn't the real win. You see, before he went on that trip, he just sensed the Spirit saying, hey, take a copy of this taste and see, and you're going to give it to one person. So he just brought one. And so he goes, and it's the night before the race, and he goes out, and, and he's just checking the winds and the water, and he, he starts to notice these people sitting over here, these two ladies, and, and he starts talking to them. I'm like, I'm the wife, I'm the wife. I don't know if you've ever had those awkward moments. And, and so, that was funny, by the way. And, and so... Maybe just in my mind. But here are these ladies, and they're like, we're not swimming, but our friend is. And eventually she gets out of the water, and she comes up, and they introduce her to Leif, and she looks at me, and she says, I know exactly who you are. You are Margaret Feinberg, and I did your Fight Back with Joy Bible study. I was like, 
okay, cool, cool. And, and so Leif starts talking to her and explaining like the winds and the waves and the currents and kind of takes her under his arm and we go to sleep before the race that night. And, and the morning goes, you know, I think that lady's supposed to get the book. And, and so we meet up with her and just kind of encouraging her. She's scared about na 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 na. And we kind of make our way toward the race. And I say, I'll give this to you afterwards, but, but this is for you. And Leif explains, you know, I just sense the spirit say there's one person in this race that I'm supposed to give this book to. And all of a sudden, she just looks, and she takes the book, and she just starts weeping. And I'm like, girlfriend, those tears will interfere with your foggy goggles. I just want to say that. And so she starts to share how the year before, she'd been through a brutal divorce and custody battle. It sucked the life out of her. And in the midst of that, somebody said, what do you like to do for exercise? And she said, you know, I, I like to swim. So... She went out and she started swimming 10, 20 days, 20 minutes a day. And she thought, man, I need a pin in the fact God has a hope and a future for me. And so she goes out and, and all of a sudden she's, she says, you know what? I'm going to go swim Alcatraz. And so she does it that day. She's super scared. Leif unders, just takes her under and she finishes that race and feels great. And I recently got a box of fabulous snacks from Canada for her because we still keep in touch. But I think about that woman and I think about that day. Those days were five years apart. Five years apart. Five years before I was in that place of absolute smashed brokenness. Five years later, there is no evidence of cancer. Okay? Two different places, and I share that because I don't know where you are today. I don't know what situation you're walking in. I don't know what hardship. I don't know what diagnosis. I don't know what your financial situation is. But some of you right now are in the hottest mess of it all. There are days that you are waking up and you can't hardly get oxygen inside of your lungs. And if that is you, can I encourage you, whatever it takes, put a pin in the fact that God has a hope and a future for you. It may be as simple as planning a little getaway with friends, a nice dinner, buying a can of pain or maybe being cuckoo enough to go swim Alcatraz. But others of you, that deep crisis, you are two years or three years or five or 15 or 20 years. And I know the pandemic is sucking the life out of all of us one way or another. But is there a way you can identify those who are right in the middle of it? Rally some people to help that person put a pin in the fact God has a hope and a future for them. Because friends, God's healing does not just want to flow through you and to you. It wants to flow out from you. And so my hope and my prayer is that this will start to stir your hunger for understanding the rich ways and God reveals himself as our provider, our sustainer, our healer. That the next time that you nibble on a grape or take a sip of some fabulous juice, that you would remember that the pruning in your life is not for your harm. God is still for your good. That you would not be shy about answering that call to abide in him. Day after day, no matter what rocks aren't moving, he still wants to work in you. And that you would experience the healing of Christ, his resurrection, his hope, his fullness in your everyday. May you be people who taste and see that the Lord is indeed wildly good. Amen.
Well, thank you, Margaret, for being with us. And maybe you're interested in more about that. Maybe you're a foodie or maybe you became a foodie today thinking about it. Maybe you're going to go home and have some uh, bread dipped in some olive oil and some spices. Um, but maybe you're interested in learning more about food and what the foods can tell us about God, his character, and his plan for your life. So if you're interested, uh, Margaret's going to be out in the atrium just to the left. There'll be a book table there. Uh, she can sign those books, ch chat with you a little bit. You can tell her about your experience and maybe encourage her if what she had to say encouraged you today. If not, thank you for being here today. We're starting a brand new series next week called The Tales of the Unexpected. We'll look at how God works in the midst of the, the twists and the turns of your life and the lives of other people throughout history. And how we can tweak our expectations to experience the maximum amount of joy, whatever comes our way. Thank you for being here. We'll see you all next week. Thanks for watching online as well. See you then.